Some men say that women are impossible to please, but Mo Beasley thinks that he knows what women really want. That and much more on this episode of Sex, Love, Joy. You're listening to Sex, Love, Joy, an interview series in which special guests reveal intimate details about how they're connecting the dots between sex, love, joy. I am your host, Anain Bjorkvist. On today's show, I have with me performance poet, speaker, educator, and the creator of Urban Erotica, Mo Beasley. Mo explains what his show, Urban Erotica, is all about, what it took for him to create it, what it's like for him to raise daughters, and he goes into detail about his theory on what women really want when it comes to love and what men can do to make sure that they please their women. I hope you enjoy this episode of Sex, Love, Joy. I want you to tell the listeners about your show. My show is called Mo Beasley's Urban Erotica, the house that lust built and love saved from damnation. It's a live, yes, variety show, neo-burlesque show of poetry, music, dance, theater, video, film, um, that celebrates true erotica from the most soft and sensual to the most wild and explicit. And we always, for over 15 years now, we take people on a journey through four rooms or four suites of erotica. Uh, the first one being infatuation, the second one being seduction, third being sweet bliss, and the fourth being the raw suite. We just want to show people how the, the simplest things are just as erotic as the most wild and explicit things. And it's all erotic. The conversation, the silence, the touch, the ear, the the eye, the sigh, as well as the whip, the rose, the the Bible, the the Mar- Marquis de Sade, all those things are erotic. It was inspired by Audre Lorde's essay, The Erotic as Power, something I read back way back when I graduated from college. And it really spelled out what was I knew was in me. And I thought, okay, because it's not just it's not just sex that I crave or feel. It's something much more sensual, it's something deeper. It's a part of the thing that makes me an artist. Before I had the words for it, Archer Lord helped me articulate it. And throughout my journey as an artist, I started to find other artists who were singing, who were dancing, who were painting, who were writing, who also were just sensual by nature and erotic. And I created a space for us to come together to to celebrate it and to, to clarify it. Because I think when people hear erotic or erotica, they usually just think of pornography. Mm-hmm. And in Urban Erotica, when I open up the show, when I host it, I say, we pick up where pornography leaves off by stroking the organ between your ears mm-hmm. and allowing your imagination to take care of the rest. And we ain't got, we're, and we're hit, we are not hating on pornography at all. We're just saying that there's so much more to add to the party. So that's the long explanation of what my show is. And, um, and oh, the last, the other thing that's most important, I think, one of the most important elements is that from the beginning, it has always been this eclectic, multi-ethnic, cultural, cross-world, all all lifestyle, welcoming space. So if you're making love and finding your way and touching asphalt and concrete in New York City, your story of erotica and love and sex gets to, is welcome on our stage. So that is Urban Erotica, Mo Beasley's Urban Erotica in a nutshell. So which suite is your favorite not as a producer and curator of a show but as a man wow um that's a great question that's a great question i've never 
never been asked that question. I just, oh, okay. What's my sweet bliss is the first thing that comes to mind. Really? Hmm? Why don't you explain each of them more? Okay. Infatuation is about that first meeting or that first sight, the first pull of your attention. And so it could be passing someone on the street. It could be it could be someone at work that has just been you can't take your eyes off of. It could be it could be and I've had artists write a piece about the the customer service person that they've been dealing with for one particular problem with say their cell phone and they wind up getting infatuated with the sound of their voice. And so it's just the sound of their voice. Um and so it's all about that. And the thing that makes you inspires you to say, Hey, would you like to come have a cup of coffee? Can I call you? Hi, my name is So that's infatuation suite. And once you're infatuated and that person says, yes, let's go have some coffee, or I'll call you tonight, and the, the conversation lasts till sunup, or you can't drink any more coffee because your bladder's about to blow up, and you're not, <laughs> you don't want to get up from the, the seat in the in the coffee shop, and the seduction has begun, and you start moving closer to each other. And so seduction suite is that space where you may wind up petting, playing, or flirting for a long time, and you finally give in and, and merge and meld physically and emotionally, and, or maybe it's just physically, and it's just that physical thing that is moving you. So that's that's all seduction. Sweet bliss is that space when you wake up the next morning and you don't want to pull a coyote ugly, when you want to you want to sit in the funk, you don't want to open a window, you don't want to get up to go take a piss, and you want to go make them breakfast, you want to do it again before you get out of bed, before you're fully awake, and so that's and, so, and then you want to call your best friend or your mama and say, I met my soulmate. This might be for the 10th time, but shit, you know, you're going to keep trying to get it right. And so that's sweet bliss because now you're open and you thought what was just physical is really something deeper and richer. And so you want to start developing a connection, a relationship, if you will. And you want to know their name. Oh, <laughs> you want to know wait. who they really are. Because, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm keeping it real in this new millennium because this time, hey, look. Pause. How many sweets was that? And he just said it. <laughs> Look, I'm being real tough. Yes, <laughs> we know it. We all, you know, I won't say all of us, but many of us have been there. And it's like, look, I don't even want to know your name. Don't, don't tell me your name. Or I'm, I'm gonna hold on to your club name. And then it's like, okay, oh. uh, you know what? Who are you? Who are you really? Some people can have long relationships like that. I want to meet you in the way, in the style, in the setting that I met you first time and that's all that's how we're always gonna meet you know i'm gonna meet you at and that's the part of i don't know what you do when you're not in this space i don't know who you are when you're not in this space but that's when i meet you there we many of us have i mean it's new york city it's 2015 so there are a lot of us who are having um incredible exciting sexual erotic relationships and we really don't take the time to know that person beyond that yeah beyond that service beyond that experience but then tell something about, about tell them about the fourth suite before you go into this oh. Because I got some questions about this. Because I like good. this theory. And so, Sweet Bliss, I mean, after Sweet Bliss, and then the show, we try to, we usually try to take it, take a break at, at you know, intermission. Because, as you said, some things that the poets have said or done, or the performers have done, might question whether or not that thing is really just sweet, or that thing is seduction, or that's infatuation. They're, they're pushing the line. Mm-hmm. So in the raw suite, we just obliterate the line. <laughs> <laughs> so tell them more how, of how you guys just obliterate that line so in, in the raw suite it's just like you know it's about fucking it's about it's about bondage it's about the line between it's bds and them it's whatever it is, you know whatever makes you you open and willing to do things you might never thought you would do things that people are taboo that are just wild so stories about 
anything from what swinging to swapping to anal to bondage to I think we, anything collectively over the years we've all said we, raw sweet welcomes any part of eroticism and sexuality up into the line of bestiality just about <laughs> like that's the line <laughs> and other than that and, it's, and, it's, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, as long as it's all consensual and so the raw sweet and for me I set it up like that because when you walk into love with somebody mm. Raw sweet gets that deeper because you have this trust. So you can do something, things you've never would have think of think of doing before. Mm-hmm. But you said, you know, I've had women say to me, you know what, I you now you got me to open. I would do anything you ask me to do, and that takes that takes work. You know, that's not just because you turning somebody on. Like you've you that's you've earned someone's trust. And so for me, that's raw sweet when you again will push your own boundaries and envelope of what you think you might not ever do. That. That trust, I I was teaching this weekend, and in my workshop, I taught that to get to that trust, you got to give your lover a lot of empathy and appreciation. Mm. Ooh, so, I like that. Yeah, that's mm. what I, you know that's what I see when you're when you're talking about that the the empathy that and an appreciation that it takes for them to to say I am so open that I would do anything you ask. And I love this thing that you said earlier about wanting to see the person. As you met them, because especially uh-huh. how in in the day and age that we're in, like how you were talking about how people will meet, let's say they meet like on an online hookup site and, right. you know, they're just getting together to hook up. If somebody else is not necessarily the person that lives the, the day to day that shows up, it's that, that excited person. Tell me more right. about this, because I know Mo Beasley has some experiences. No, you do. <laughs> How, yes. how you know that? Because you, <laughs> yeah, you've been talking. <laughs> how many minutes did it take us to stop giggling so we could get serious about the interview? <laughs> uh, are we serious now? Yes, oh, we, I didn't know. This it. is recording. Are we serious now? Oh, oh, stop playing. Okay. <laughs> now we. Thank See, you for letting back me know. To the giggling. All right. <laughs> so, um, what was the question again? <laughs> um. Just talk about whatever oh, you want to talk about at this people, point. <laughs> uh, I like that. But I, I do remember you said, um, talk about meeting people in one particular way. Yes. I mean, look, you know, there is, I mean, I have friends, many friends, of course, doing this show who are, who are doms. And so mm. they might, they only meet their clients in one, one kind of persona. Yeah. And that's how you know them. There are people who meet somebody at a club dancing and it's a you know they go salsa dancing on a particular night of the week and they meet that person there always on that wednesday night or that thursday night and that's what they know that person showing up in that suit in that dress in those shoes and if they hook up afterwards and they're always hooking up in that setting that's what they know of that person and they might be fine with knowing not knowing their name or accepting that the name you give me is a part of the persona you give me you were um you were on a panel while I was there, and you were talking about your experiences about how performing sex on stage, mm-hmm. and one of your panelists was talking about that of how people see her in her uh, persona. I think she was a burlesque dancer, and then they see her sometimes mm-hmm. also at her real job, and they want that burlesque dancer to show up. Right. With you, I don't see a difference between the Mo Beasley that shows up before and after shows. The man hosting the show is very much you, or at least I see that person as very much you. Thank you, because I feel like when I'm on stage, I'm my fullest self. It's not a show as much as I get to be my fullest self. And I think, I guess, my energy, my presence, what have you, it's just bigger than 
regular life. Yeah. And so when you go to the day job or the, teaching my classes, you know, I'm dialing it back because that, you know, that part of yourself. I think many performers probably know that you, you know, your largest self doesn't fit into everyday life. So you got to dial it back. So when I'm on stage, it's like, ah, I get to be home. Yeah. And I really do. I feel, I feel at home. You birthed this show. Can you tell the listeners about the journey of how you went to college and this is, you know, you studied theater mm -hmm. arts, right? And then you went right. from there yeah. and you graduated. And what was it like for you when you went into the real world as a black man to try to get a job? Oh my goodness. It was, it was, it was just, it was disheartening. It was, um, it was dis disappointing. Um, I have a bachelor of fine arts in theater from Howard university with a concentration in acting. And so, very proud of the time spent there and the lessons taught there at Howard University and the craft of storytelling through theater, through acting. So when I got out, um, and I've been acting since I was, uh, semi-professionally since I was 17. I know I was in 11, I got the, I was bit with the bug. So it was great to be able to go to school and study the thing that I just love to do. And uh, when I got out of college, my first job was Jamaican drug dealer for America's Most Wanted. And then my second job was, was for independent film with up-and-coming director named Jesse Vaughn Jr. And I was thug number one. And then that was the middle of the summer after graduating Howard University. By the end of the summer, America most, America's Most Wanted dug my work so well, they wanted me to come back and I got to play rapist number two. And so I thought the first summer after coming out of, coming out of the hollowed halls of Howard University, you know, following people like Debbie Allen, mm -hmm. Felicia Rashad, and uh, and the list goes on of yeah. uh, just great, great black luminaries in theater and film and television. I thought, really, this is what this is the this is the these are the dues you pay. And back then, it was I graduated in the nineties. Like it's the it's nineteen nineties, and we still have to be thugs. We have to be you know we have to be the comic relief or the thug or the scary you know the nigga, these these classic stereotypes, mm -hmm. the savage beast or the the funny comic relief. You know, yeah. so you know I didn't I didn't love acting enough to follow that path because there are friends of mine who now you love who are doing hit TV shows who are in class with me um, and they loved it they loved it enough to pay those dues and I'm very happy for them and proud of them but I knew that I was trying to do something different Mo can can you you said that 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 bit about you not loving it enough at Catalyst mm -hmm. and it hit me can you tell more like what does that mean to you that you didn't love it enough because I know there's something deeper there because the things that I do and I sacrifice and have sacrificed to be a performance poet mm -hmm. I would not do for, to be an actor I mean and, and we can get into what those sacrifices are but that's the difference and what I knew but I didn't have the words for it back then mm -hmm. but I didn't love it enough because I knew that there was something in me that I had to get out and so I didn't love oh. acting enough to pay the dues to tell someone else's stories and stories that demeaned me, I thought, or demeaned the mission I was on. Because I really am. I am redefining, refining my existence and the people that I come from by being a storyteller. I love it even more now because what you're saying is like, I knew I had to give birth to this. I knew something. Yeah. Like I didn't have the words. I didn't know what it was. But I knew that following that, was going against what was already inside of me but what was inside of me i would pay whatever for and you have paid yeah. to do it yes and it's just so and i'm i'm thankful for that because i feel like there is a guide in my life or guides in my life that are without me giving having the words or just saying that's not the road for you that's not the road for you or if you take that road you'll still get and i do think we're going to get to where we're supposed to get to but if you take that road you know it's going to take you longer 
It's going to take you around the way. And so, and in some ways, well, no, because then what I did was I went into production. I went behind the scenes because I thought I need to produce the kind of work that speaks to what it is I want to want to say and present to the world. And so, so I started doing work in production and wound up becoming a, and I did sound, I did lights, I did props. I ran crew for uh, the Kennedy Center, Arena Stage in D.C., every small little theater company in D.C., uh, Source Theater, and then uh, started from that, it evolved into becoming a stage manager at places like Crossroads Theater, the Boys Choir of Harlem, and the, the Public Theater in New York City, and eventually on Broadway for the Public Theater with Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk. And then after that, uh, Blue Man Group, which another off-Broadway hit. And so I learned how to put shows together from behind the scenes. I sat next to some of the most amazing directors and writers in the business, whether it was George Wolfe, Hal Scott, Woody King Jr., Ruby D, Sorette Scott, Shirley Joe Finney, just these amazing artists, storytellers, Intezaki Shange. And Intezaki Shange was a huge, still is a huge inspiration for me because she was doing what I wanted to do. She was a, she was a poet and also a dancer. And she took her poetry and turned it into a cohesive piece of theater um, with for colored girls who've, who've considered suicide when the rainbow was enough. And her and Woody King and Joe Papp way back in the 70s took that to Broadway. And even then as a kid in college reading that story, I knew that that's what I want to do. I want to do that kind of eclectic, mix it all up in some kind of untraditional, uncommon way of telling stories. So people like Intezaki Shange, Audre Lorde, um, James Baldwin, who were just, and the irony of it is when I look back, a lot of those people tend to be who are sexually untraditional. Mm-hmm. And so, which is, you know, basically saying they, they are the gay or lesbian or, or, um, or, you know, or willing to live in their erotic power. <laughs> That's other. Living there and they, right. Tactic, <laughs> right. Other. And so, and I remember how Scott telling, I remember, again, as a stage manager, what was so powerful about being a stage manager was being in rehearsal one day with Hal Scott, who directed uh, Paul Robeson on Broadway with Avery Brooks. Um, he's directed so much amazing theater that most of the world doesn't know about, but he's a master storyteller. And uh, we were in rehearsal one day, and he said to the actors, if an artist is not in touch with their uh, true sexual identity, then their art will be false. Like, you can't, it will be inauthentic. It will be fake. The audience will know it because if you're hiding who you are, because your sexual core, your erotic self is your most true self. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's you're, and Audre Lorde would say in an essay, it's where creative energy lives, where it springs from. Mm-hmm. And so if you're being, if you're lying about, or you're trying to hide your sexuality, you're trying to hide your creative core and you can't be fully real, you know, fully realized as an artist. And I remember saying that and going, you know, I'm, I've been a sexual pretty, um, since college, because I was a pretty shy kid in high school. And once I got to college, just sexually, I opened up. <laughs> I remember when the dudes in school called me and said, yo, Moe Beasley's just a walking hormone. And I, used to, I was offended by that back in school. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and I like, but then as I got older and it made sense, I was like, okay, so I need to create a space called Urban Erotica where being sexually secure, sexually open, sexually uh, happy, Mm-hmm. And sensual is is cool, is welcome. And so why not when I create a house that lust built and love saved from damnation? That's because it, you know, that's really coming from my life. You know, I started being just a lustful kid, and as I evolved as a man, it's it it just it blossoms in, into love, and you know, it, yeah, it blossoms into love. And birthing that house. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
and I, I and I didn't have the words for it back then. And I guess doing this work, I hope that you know we have young people that we can help to go put words to it because I, um, who. Well, you, I, I, you just I, said speaking like young people, and you mentioned this in your talk about um, how you teach students. You work with students. You work with young people, and how some of them end yeah. up later on in life seeing your work and becoming a part yeah. of your work. Tell the listeners about that, yeah. like how the the growth that you see oh. in these young people from when they're you know young teens and then coming up. Tell them because I love that bit. Oh, I do too because I'm proud of them. Um, there are young people that I work with who are just amazing poets, actors, dancers. Um, and when I've taught them in high school or in, or in college, it never fails that students will eventually Google me, and they'll Google me and find out about urban erotica. And they'll come in class, and they go, Mr. Moe. And I go, that's not here. Like, we don't have that conversation here. That part of my professional life is not, is not appropriate in the school setting. And so there have been students throughout the years who have just stayed close to me, protégés, mentees, and just want to work with me in any capacity. And so when they come of age and and they can come to Urban Erotica because they are old enough to do so and they buy a ticket and they show up and they go, I want to be a part of this, you know, Mo. And it's no longer Mr. Mo. And I go, okay, you are. And they're artists in their own right. And they go, and they want to do this work. And so, and they love the way that we're doing it because the, the interesting thing was when I started doing Urban Erotica, erotic poetry was looked down, down upon as not real poetry, just some poetry to get some ass at the end of the night. When I knew that the artists that I was working with, we understood erotica and that people would catch up to us. And I also knew that people who didn't really get it would just see that we had packed houses, lines, you know, going out, out the door and around the corner and going like, I want to pack the house. And so I'll start doing this erotic poetry or poetry about sex. And so the young people that work closely with me would come to our show because they knew that it was a safe space that understood how to nurture a human being's sexuality in a loving, safe space that embraced them, that welcomed them, whatever walk of, whatever orientation they were, they brought to the table. And so it's still, so in some ways I'm still a father figure to them on some level in the work, but again, so that they, they get to realize themselves again, without judgment. Yeah. So I love that because also I understand that when I was their age, I was looking for someone to hand off a baton to me. Like I wanted to, I wanted an inheritance from, you know, from my family life, from my artistic life. And so I'm being what I wished I had. And so I know that I'm going to turn it over to them, the work over to them because they're, they're adults now. And I am, I'm getting, you know, I'm, I'm older. I've worked with people who didn't, who are in denial and who created wonderful, amazing, amazing institutions for art. And they faltered when that person died because they didn't, they didn't nurture a successor or successor. Students, young people that are working with me for all, all these years, I'm, this is their inheritance. In addition to my daughters, because they're my daughters. So when they get older, I can see it in them now that they, have, they carry their daddy's passion, fire. And it's, when they become women, they're going to be some scary-ass women. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about, about you raising all daughters? Yes. Some people would say it's my karma karma for all the women that I've <laughs> in, my, in my life. And I'm like, if it's my karma, then bring it on and let's figure out how to incorporate, you know, how to make it a positive. We're like, okay, cool. If it's my job, because the beautiful thing about raising daughters is I'm learning about women. I'm learning so much more about women than I ever did before. Um, so things that are just innate. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you've learned from raising daughters. What I've learned from raising daughters, they need to be heard. I've learned uh, like so much. Their aesthetic, <laughs> their, their innate aesthetic, I need for um, 
beauty, they're uh, so much uh, more discerning, like the questions. And everyone who has girls that I know talks about the fact that girls ask questions about everything. And it always amazes me that how is it that men, quote unquote, rule the world when women are so much more thoughtful, so much more thoughtful. And so and they're, and they're, they're, they're clocking everything. They're watching everything and they listen. So I'm learning that, that how, I guess, innate that is. There's so much, there's so many lessons. I'm just like, you know, I haven't listed them. And now that I'm on the spot, I'm trying to think of more of them. And you're a great daddy. Like, those girls are your heart. Like, they're everything. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yes, they are. And it's so, you know, and it's amazing because it wasn't what I was planning for my life at this point. Mm -hmm. But it was exactly, they're exactly what I needed to grow me up in a way that I wouldn't have, I guess I wouldn't have. And so they, as, as much as I'm committed to the creative work that I do, and it seems cliche, but having a family to take care of grounds you in a whole nother way. That makes the work richer, makes you more focused. So I guess it makes me think about my father. Uh, my father was a military man, so we didn't have a quantity of time together growing up. But the things he would tell me about women that I learned, that I do see in my daughter. He told me back in my 20s, he said, man, women, if you got a woman that you love, love her with all that you got, all that you can, and know that. That's not going to be enough. You're not going to be able to match her. She's going to love you better because women are built that way. They they built to love better than us. Now, but all she needs all she needs to see from you to love you is that you are doing your best. Women get pissed off at us when they know when they know we're not giving our best. They already know it ain't going to match them, but they know they know what your limit is. Whether you know, they know your capacity. <laughs> whether you know your capacity, and when they know that you're not living up to your capacity, then they're going to get pissed off. And so, just love. Love her the best you know how to love her and, and know that she's still going to beat you. At, she, she gonna, she's going to be better at it than you are. And so watching my girls grow, I, you know, the level, level of care and compassion and empathy and it's something amazing. And I do think I'm a great dad. I love being a father. I love it. I love it more than I thought I would. And, I, and if I knew, <laughs> I, I was commissioned a couple of years ago to write a letter to my 17-year-old self from Esther Arma, who runs this emotional justice series. She's on MSNBC. And back then, she was a radio host for WBAI Radio. And she commissioned me to write a letter to my 17-year-old self to tell me about love. Like, if I could talk to my 17-year-old self, what would I tell him about love? And so in that letter, I said, you love family. Protect your legacy better. Find the mate or mate to, to create legacy with on purpose. And so, because if I had known this, I would have had more children and still created this work. Like, I, I just would have, I love having a family. It just feels right. It's something I'm supposed to be doing. And it's funny, but and that was my point really was that as good as I am as a dad, I'm a single dad because cancer took mommy from us five years ago. And I know that I'm not as good as a mommy. I know that what comes with being a woman is something that I can't touch. I've watched my daughter Athena be born and what her mommy Oma went through to have her. I go, that's, um, you know, I, <laughs> I bow down out awestruck I can't I can't compete with that and I wouldn't try to like I just like that and what that that kind of bond and connection that it creates I can't touch as a man and so I'm doing my best and I know I couldn't touch you know mommy if she was still here and it's and I'm I'm good with that like I you know I know <laughs> so what I know my role I know my lane and so that's what I'm learning about with my raising my daughters and raising my youngest Raina Solo is that um just do, I love, I gotta love her the best I can with the best I got. Do all the, and I've come up with a, a phrase, <laughs> a mantra when I'm having the hardest time, and then do all that I can with all that I have all the time. And so when it's done, and it, you know, I guess the, in sports they say, leave it all on the court. And so that's it. Like when it's, 
I do all that I can with all that I have all the time. And, uh, and yeah, that's what the girls have taught me. <laughs> and they're good because daddy's here, you know, showing up. Show up. Just show up, man. Keep... And that's the thing I, I do want to say because so many dads, and I'm going to scream scream it out loud, is that, look, man, all fathers, you got children out in the world, show up in the way that you can show up, you know, not the way that maybe the mother of your children thinks you should show up or your family or your culture, your community, but you know your capacity. Show up at your best, you know, show up to the fullest extent of your capacity. And, and if that ain't good enough for everybody else, then so be it. But it's got to be good for you. You just got to show up. I have too many boys in my, my manhood classes writing poetry about the absence of their fathers. And I have young girls in other poetry classes writing that. And I'm just going to show up, man. I don't care if you don't get along with your mama. I don't care if y'all had your issues. Show up if you can. In the best way, all the ways you can. And it just makes a huge difference to just have daddy show up. And I love the fact that I think with my girls, they know. They never, they, they never question my presence. You know, if I'm going to be there or not. I guess they take it for granted, as they should. So much here that I want to ask you when I know you have more time and you're not mm-hmm. pressed to get back to that baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See? <laughs> Mo. Uh-oh. <laughs> Mo Beasley. Sex is. It is. It is water to me. It is vital. It is necessary to my happiness, to my creativity, to my smile. Yeah. Love is. Elusive. Fragile painful love hurt i love to quote khalil gibran in his poem on love if you show up for love just for its pleasure and not for the pain and for the pruning then do not cross love's threshold for it's not love that you're seeking and it goes on from there so love will prune you love will transform you love will (laughs) will will put you through the fire and then will shred shed dead skin from your bones and your soul and so it is not for the faint, but it's the ultimate. We all need it. We all want it. It's funny. Sex is easy to get. And it's funny because now sex without love is so hollow to me. Like that's, I've lost that joy and that, like just for the sake of, you know, fucking for the sake of fucking. That's also, I guess, raising my girls has taught me that. Like it's got to be, I need some, I need some shit with weight to it. You know, like I'm, I'm not here to play. Like I can't in any game. And so, and I like to think it's also just getting older knowing what I like, what I need, and to be more discerning. It's not what men usually do. You know, we just, but I think if we dig deeper, you realize, okay, you start to listen to what it is you need to feel fed emotionally, in your spirit, intellectually. What what do you need to be fed? You need the organ between our ears stroked as well. And that takes more time than just rolling up on a, on some, on a woman because she got a fat ass. <laughs> <laughs> Mo. Yes. Joy is... <laughs> The love of my life. <laughs> joy is the love of your life. <laughs> what? As you might have to edit this one out. <laughs> oh, wow. So that's the love of your life. We're leaving it at that. And then you're going to tell me when I stop recording? Yeah, I'll tell you when you stop recording. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show, Mo. Thank you for having me on I. Thanks for listening to Sex, Love, Joy. For more interviews like this one and my other work, please visit sexlovejoy.com. I hope that listening to today's guests talk about living their truths helps you in your quest to do the same. Remember, thriving ain't easy, but adding a little sex, love, joy to your day makes the living a whole lot 
juicier. Until next time.